It's the Basketball Hall of Fame's Legends Podcast. I'm Kyle Belanger. Joining me today is a titan not only of basketball and sport, but of American history. He is Wayne Embry, a 1999 Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame enshrinee, a one-time NBA champion with the legendary 1968 Boston Celtics, a five-time NBA All-Star, but his impact off the court might be even more important. He was the first African-American general manager when the Milwaukee Bucks named him so, and then the first African-American team president when the Cavaliers made him that a few decades later. He is a two-time NBA Executive of the Year. Mr. Wayne Embry, thank you kindly for joining me today. You're welcome. Nice meeting you talking with you, Kyle. It's such a pleasure indeed. Now, we have so much to touch upon, and, and so much of the major stuff happens off the court. So I'd like to back up and start with the on-the-court details before we transition. At six foot eight and 240 pounds, you played quite the bruising style in the paint. Was that style natural for Wayne Embry, or, or did you have to learn it when it became obvious that that was going to be your path to success? Well, I had to learn because at 6'8", uh, I was undersized a bit to play my position, playing against the greats of, like Bill Russell, Will Chamberlain, Nate Thurman, all Hall of Famers, and they had considerable size advantage on me. So I had to learn to... Uh, cope with their size, but also how to use my strengths, which was uh, uh, my fact that I was strong, and I had to use that in competing against them, and uh, it was uh, it was quite an effort. It was, and it's still fun to watch the tapes of Wayne Embry go to work. In the NBA, of course, you landed with the Cincinnati Royals, where you and Oscar Robertson develop one of the most iconic pick-and-roll plays the game has ever known. Um, how did that begin, and was it something that the two of you discussed? Well, it's something we worked on very hard in practice, uh, and we uh, felt that uh, with my size, uh, strength primarily, and uh, Oscar's ability to not only shoot the ball coming off of the screen, but also pass uh, to me rolling. Uh, and if I weren't uh, open, he could find others that were. And uh, we became very proficient at it, and uh, it was very much part of our offense. It was such an incredible part of the offense, and one of the more important parts of the most important offense this side of the Celtics uh, in that era, which is why my favorite story of your career actually comes uh, after you were thinking about retiring, um, when the Celtics, uh, Bill Russell, basically made a phone call and talked you out of retirement to join that legendary Celtics teams. Can, can you tell me about that that phone call, that discussion, uh, and then maybe the way that uh, how hard was it to talk you out of retirement at that moment? I had retired to go to work for Pepsi-Cola because I thought that would be my post-playing day career. And uh, somehow uh, Red Arbeck made the initial call, called me and said that uh, they were interested in uh, my coming joining Celtics. And then I got a call from Bill Russell. And he was, of course, the just named coach. And he, uh, he brought me to, uh, well, actually, we were going to the Cutcher's Country Club to play in the annual Blue Stokes game. And so uh, I played golf with Russell 
when we were there and after a game of golf, he said, I want you to go meet with Red. Uh, so after a round of golf, I went and sat with Red Iron back and he said, I want you to come and, and, uh, join the Celtics. We can make a trade for you. Uh, so, uh, he went on to continue to continue telling me what a great experience would be playing with the Celtics. Of course, having competed against them the number of years that, uh, that uh, I did, of course, and always falling short of winning, and although we were very competitive against them. Uh, yeah, I think all players would like to be a, a champion, and so he convinced me that uh, this was my way of becoming a champ, and he uh, was very persuasive in doing so. So uh, I thought about it, talked it over with my wife, and he called me again in the middle of the week after I had returned to Cincinnati and asked me what my decision was. And I said, well, I think I'm going to stay with Texaco because uh, <laughs> I think I can make more money. And then he says, how much are you going to make with Pepsi? And I told him, he says, yeah, but you're not going to win a championship with Pepsi and you're not going to uh, get the playoff money, which will offset the difference. And I hadn't thought of that, so I changed my mind. And decided to join the Celtics. That is an incredible story. I've never heard that part. <laughs> that, that part where you were actually legitimately going to go to Pepsi, if not for the playoff money. Uh, so my my only follow up to <laughs> my main follow up to that is I want to know who has the better long game. Who's who? Who works the driver better? You or Bill Russell on the golf course? Well, I uh, I gotta admit that I out, I could outdrive Bill. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> now once once you left the court um wayne your impact on the game might have been even more impactful uh in 1971 just three years after the civil rights act um, you were named the first african-american general manager in the league um by the milwaukee bucks is it possible to describe the way uh that moment impacted you and those around you well it, i had no idea that uh, that uh, that opportunity would be possible because no one had done it before uh, African-American descent. So I uh, went back to Milwaukee as assistant to the president and I served in that capacity first. And then unbeknownst to me, the president had taken a job in Houston and that the afternoon that that became known, uh, the ownership of the uh, Bucks called me again and uh, asked me to sit down. And I sat down, and Wes Pavlon, who was the majority owner, said she was a league general manager in the Milwaukee Bucks. And of course, I was stunned because, as I said, I didn't know that uh, the, that uh, the person was in that seat, it was leaving. And so uh, I thought about it and I said, well, this is, thank you. I look forward to the opportunity. And uh, I talked it over with my wife and decided to go for it. And that's how it all happened. And I didn't have any doubts. I, I, I of course, had been in around the game and had a great passion for the game. And 
I uh, I just felt that uh, I could do it as well as anybody else. Uh, there would be a learning curve, of course, and I didn't know what to expect and how it would be received. And I was asked by the press if I felt any significance in it. The fact that I was the first African-American general manager in any sport. And I said, it doesn't matter if I see significant in it. It matters if others do. And and hopefully I'm not the last. So I took it from there and uh, the rest is history. It is. It is. And then more more than two decades later, in 1994, the Cleveland Cavaliers uh, make Wayne Embry the first African-American team president. Can you discuss the ways the racial and power landscape had changed from 71 to 94 and, and, and maybe how it hadn't? Well, you know, I uh, I was a uh, general manager, of course, for Milwaukee for a number of years, and and I would uh, receive quite a bit of hate mail. I'd get two or three letters a month yes, sir. of hate mail. And when I went to Cleveland, I went back to my home state, and I thought that uh, given that time had passed, that things were getting much better in our society, uh, the hate letters continued. And uh, it was, it was uh, uh, very difficult times as I got to the point where I would ignore uh, the letters and it's just, you know, uh, business as usual. Yes, sir. I could just control what I could control and do the best I could in my job and I pursued it that way. And I uh, uh continued on and being a bit emotional talking about it because a story that I haven't told yes sir I am about to tell uh, when it finally hit home that there were those out there who could do harm I uh, I learned firsthand as one evening I was in the game and uh, the director of security for the building asked me to come to his office and he reached in his coat pocket, pulled out another letter and he said, I get, I get, I get plenty of those. I don't need any more. He says, well, this one's a little different. This is on your seat in your box. And he reaches in his side pocket, pulls the bullets out with this bullet line. And of course, that got my attention. Yeah. And so uh, I had to leave the game with a detail on front and detail on back, 24 hour security on my house, and two FBI agents in my box for the rest of the year. And, you know, I just, uh, I just couldn't believe that that time in history, things like that could happen. Yeah. But it did. 
It did. And it's not something we can ever erase. And it's through the courage and strength and representation um, of of, of, of you and, and, and all of those who have come since and before that we're able to watch this game really mimic the history of our country. And that's why I think Wayne Embry, in the time that Wayne Embry happened from the civil rights era through the early 90s and the turmoil, it seems to me that basketball is uniquely positioned to mirror American history. Would you agree with that? I think that through sports, uh, you can bring people together from diverse backgrounds and work toward a common goal. Yes, sir. And it's done a, a great a deal of bringing people together. And, you know, in, in the game of basketball, uh, five people are on the floor together, plus those who are on the bench with you in the locker room. Uh, and, I tell my players that you got to establish and build a mutual respect and mutual trust for each other and go out and work toward a common goal and that's to win championships. Yes, sir. So, and yes, uh, I think through basketball, uh, probably more so than any other sport. Yeah. Uh, that holds true. No, it's it's remarkable because your involvement in the MVP, in the NBA is, is, is now reaching six decades. Can, can you talk about where we sit right now, what is the most important advancement in this game that you don't think gets enough attention? I think that uh, the game, of course, uh, has become international. It's, it's a global sport. It's uh, bringing people from all over the world, literally, together to compete and it's a great thing to see that, that uh, you can bring people from nearly seven continents together yeah. and and uh, represent a team. And, you know, the game has become very uh, much, I don't know, I guess the word I want to say is uh, uh, entertaining, but at the same time, it's competition. Yeah. And uh, so... It continues to grow, and that's a good thing. Finally, Mr. Embry, what is it like? What does it mean to be working with the Basketball Hall of Fame at this stage in your life? Well, I've spent many, many years uh, working with the Basketball Hall of Fame as a trustee, and and uh, I was honored in 1999 to uh, be inducted into the Hall of Fame. And so I think that, uh, that uh, you know, the Hall has been just very much part of my life and the lives of many. And, and much gratitude to Dr. James Naismith for inventing this great game. And, and uh, it's only fitting that the Hall of Fame's named after him. And uh, I just had the utmost regard for all the Chinese, but those also have worked behind the scenes to make it such a great institution. He is a two-time NBA Executive of the Year. Uh, so important, both socially and athletically. He is a five-time NBA All-Star, an NBA champion in 1968 with the Celtics, and as he mentioned, a 1999 Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame enshrinee. He is 
Mr. Wayne Embry. Mr. Embry, thank you again for your time. I sincerely appreciate it. And thank you.